it was normal people to be able to create shows and to build things. Uh, back in those days, radio was was a you know a gatekeeper. If you think about the music industry around Napster, it was a it was all about the culture of what was happening with digital, right? All of these these gatekeepers and all all these folks that were getting in the way of normal people having a voice. If you've ever wondered how podcasting was born and why it is such a viable medium, then today's episode will satisfy all of your musings around the subject. My conversation with podcast hosting platform Libsyn's VP of Content and Partnerships, Mr. Rob Greenlee, shares with us his bold beginnings, as well as that of the early days of the internet and how podcasting became a household name that is here to stay. I certainly learned a lot, and I think you will too. If you're someone interested in how to create your own path, how to capitalize on the cutting edge of technology and industry, and my personal interest and mission, how to keep the power in the hands of the independent creator, then this one's for you. Hi, welcome back to Be Bold Begin. I am Barcy, your host, and I have yet another special guest with me today. And if you're a podcaster with the podcast, then you may have heard of the hosting platform Libsyn. My guest today is Rob Greenlee, the VP of Content and Partnerships at Libsyn, as well as my very good friend. Welcome, Rob. It's great to be here, Barcy. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm I'm honored to join you here. I'm so glad to have you. So Rob and I first met actually at Podcast Movement when, I, and again, I, I said this before we started, but I doubt that you remember this because it was in a very large, dark, dark room in Orlando, Florida at one of those opening night parties in 2019. And you were mm-hmm. just sitting and chilling in the corner. And my friend Allison, who actually is in this ser- in season five as well, you guys will hear from her soon. But uh, I was hanging out with Allison and she was like, oh, there's Rob. Um, we know each other from podcast one. And yada yada and I was like oh hi and that's the first time I met you and I doubt you remember that (laughs) but actually coming back it's coming back (laughs) yeah well I'm sure a thousand people walked up to your table that day and waved at you or or said (laughs) hi but our paths actually crossed again on social media while I was Mm -hmm. doing a live video on Instagram and so many cool people popped into that live I was sort of like taken aback by that but you were one of those people so I decided to feature everyone in my story when the live ended and uh, you were one of those people that I featured because I think you I found out that you were indicted into the podcast hall of fame which I didn't know was Mm -hmm. a thing I thought that was so cool so posted a little thing about that and then you connected with me after that uh, and we did like a phone call and and that's kind of how we started chatting Mm -hmm. do you remember that yeah, I, <laughs> I was like, you probably doesn't remember any of this. <laughs> <laughs> it goes way, way back a few years here, right? Yeah, which I think is yeah. kind of awesome. So, yep. speaking to that, we, we've had the opportunity to actually do some nice deep dive conversations since then, and I'm sure today will be a little bit like that again. But one thing that I learned so far is that, in addition to just doing cool things. And having an impressive career, you also really care about the things that you do and the people you impact. So that's that's why you're here. That's why I chose you as a guest. And uh, we're going to dig into that a little bit today. So thank you again. Now, I'm going to formally introduce you, if that's okay with you. 
Yep. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so Rob Greenlee is the VP of Content and Partnerships at Libsyn, as I mentioned earlier, and was indicted into the Academy of Podcasters Hall of Fame in 2017. He is the current board member and former chair of the Podcast Academy, also known as the Ambies, which had their first live streamed award show this year recently, which I watched the whole thing. You formerly served as VP Podcaster Relations at Foxnet's Spreaker. You started on radio in 1999 and then podcasting in 2004 with your first nationally syndicated radio show, Web Talk World Radio Show, to begin your podcasting journey. And you also worked as Foxnet's Head of Partnerships at Spreaker's Head of Content. And your other prior positions have included EVP slash CTO at Podcast One, and you currently host the New Media Show, a weekly audio and video podcast that streams live on newmediashow.com forward slash live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And you are on the editorial board for the Podcast Business Journal. Wow. <laughs> That's a mouthful. You've had quite yeah. a career. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it goes back even further than that, but that's that's good enough. I don't think we need to go any further. And you know what? That's true because I've tried to find this was one of the shorter yeah. bios I found. Right. Right. Yeah. But that just stands for I think the the interest that you have and and that you're interesting. I think you you've done a lot of interesting things and and they bridge a lot of different avenues, I guess. So on that note, this kind of brings me to my first question. So we're just going to jump right in. We actually got to have coffee in person recently, just like, you know, in the before times when people did that, and that was fun. And it was actually a weird rainy day in LA, which is also very rare. But during that that coffee date that we had, I learned a little more about how your entrepreneurial journey started. And it started with ham, honey glazed ham. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it did, it did. Of all things. Yeah. Can you um, tell us about that? Yeah, exactly. Well, it was back fairly soon after I graduated from college with a marketing degree. Um, I was I was getting involved in uh, more traditional marketing as I graduated back in that time frame. This was in the this was in the eighties, uh, late eighties time frame, and uh, was trying to build a marketing career for myself. So I I started getting involved in food marketing, which was the whole grocery store marketing stuff was at the time and to some degree continues to be kind of at the cutting edge of where um, kind of consumer marketing is. So I got, I got attracted to that as a um, kind of a career direction f- for myself. And it pulled me into all sorts of kind of uh, branded consumer products, mainly around food that I, I worked with for, for many years. Um, it spanned from having a restaurant that sold, you know, spiral sliced honey glazed hams, um, and a deli and doing a catering business. And then that moved into working more on the consumer brand stuff. So I, I ran a restaurant in Seattle by the university of Washington for five years. And so I sold, you know, tons and tons of spiral sliced hams, um, (laughs) that were all, that were cut in half or sold whole or whatever, I think our our most famous customer was the father of Bill Gates, who used to come in and buy hams. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. So he he just lived right down the street from my store, Uh, so he would come in and get get hams for his family. So that's the kind of stuff I did and catered uh, at large and small weddings. It was a family business at that time, 
that's how I got involved in kind of food stuff. And then I, I worked for an ice cream company for a while in grocery stores prior to that a little mm. bit. And then after I, I, I sold that business, I got involved in working with the supplier, which was a company called John Morell. And that company was owned by Chiquita Brands at the time and was a kind of a salesperson, kind of regional marketing manager for the, the John, Moran, John Morell meat brand and started working with grocery stores doing sales and and sales representation and then that evolved into doing doing a little bit more marketing stuff with with the brand and then eventually I, I left that company to go to work for a company called Conagra that uh, had like healthy choice and butterball and and those those kind of consumer brands and so I, I I spent quite a few years working in that area and then I left that to to become a kind of a field marketing manager for the Florida citrus industry basically built comprehensive marketing campaigns for Minamade, Tropicana, all those in, in the market. So I would basically go to a retailer, like a grocery chain, and I would put together an integrated marketing campaign that, that incorporated television, billboards, sampling, radio, contests, all that kind of stuff. And did that with orange juice, grapefruit juice, as well as fresh citrus. So I did that for five years and got great experience. And then that's what took me into the the internet because that, that was in like 1996 and 97, 98. It really gave me a lot of great experience around working with advertising, media, but that really took me into the internet because that's when the internet started to do. I, I built the first Florida Citrus mm. website at floridajuice.com. This was back in 97. And I, I started doing sweepstakes contests off the website back then and i was giving away small sailboats off of the off of the the website i was doing campaigns with the big big retailers and i was running billboard campaigns that had floridajuice.com on so it was very early in the in the dot-com era around consumer brands using using the the web with websites I, i was i put up like recipes on how to use florida citrus and and um, the nutritional information and all that kind of stuff. It was just part of a part of an integrated marketing campaign. But so that's what got got me into the internet. So I built websites, started getting involved in search engine marketing, and then started to work a little bit helping other people with their search engine strategies. And that's what pulled me out of the out of the food business and got me more into doing stuff on the internet because I saw it as such an opportunity around marketing. It was like a marketing tool that that showed up. Right, and I started to see the power of of content also as I was working with websites and online media, and that was just as Real Networks and Windows Media was starting to to fire up too, where they they started they were starting to do streaming of audio and video online, and that that really got my attention because I was very much involved in radio and and those type of things, not as talent, but more as a kind of like a manager of it. And you know, you know, with budgets and running campaigns at, at all groups of radio stations and TV stations and things like that. So I had a I had a multi million dollar budget that I was oh. working with at the time, and so so that pulled me into that era uh, or that area. And then so the combination of working with media and then working on, on the online side took me into this area. And so I was I was starting to help small businesses with their search engines optimization, which is a, still a big thing. And then I wanted to build my client base with my search engine optimization 
side business that I was doing at the time. And I went into a radio station and started a radio show. So I, I did it Saturday mornings. Uh, this was back in 1999. And, um, and that, that's what took me down this path of, of getting involved in creating spoken word audio content. So why a radio show? What brought you to that being your next step? I think it was uh, trying to reach as many people as I could with my, my knowledge that I was accumulating about how to use the, the World Wide Web and the Internet. And I was fascinated with the technology part of it. Mm-hmm. I was all completely self-taught on the technology side. I, you know, when I was going to college, they, they barely knew, you know, they barely taught you much of anything around computers. So, so it was mainly uh, just getting involved and just engulfing myself into it and trying to understand the growth and development of companies like Microsoft and, and then later Google and, and how wireless technologies were, were evolving and smartphones and things like that. So you can kind of see the beginnings of what I was getting involved in and how that kind of shaped my, my, my career path. And so as I started helping other companies and other people in the, the Google search stuff or AltaVista and Yahoo back in those days, that took me down this path of, uh, I did a radio show, and then I started distributing my radio show online. Like back in 2000, so I, I would make a, you know, a downloadable MP3 link off of my website. This was prior to really any kind of podcasting platform or anything like that. It was just, I was taking a cassette home <laughs> from, from the radio station and playing it into a $20 cassette player into my computer and making an MP3 file. Wow. And then I was just uploading it up to my my server that was hosting my website, and uh, putting links in there, and was promoting it in the, the the search engines, and and was also very aggressively trying to build my distribution. So, like over a series of years, I I was building distribution on radio, uh, like satellite radio um, networks. So that. There's a satellite radio network side. I got up to like I think 18 radio stations across the country that were carrying my show every week, wow. and then I, I, I was on two public radio stations that were taking a 30 minute version of my hour show, and then I was also streaming on the XM satellite radio network through a deal that I did with the CNET radio folks, and so that that was airing on radio stations in Boston and San Francisco through that, and then also on the XM satellite radio network for a couple of years. Wow. Um, so got, got really involved in, in that. And, and then after all that, so I, I had done all that and then podcasting started in 2004. And so I was working with other companies like Microsoft. They had a platform called Sync and Go. This was back in like 2003, 2002 to 2003. I was making 25 cents a download between Windows XP and a pocket PC device for my radio show. So I was making like 5000 a month just off of distributing my radio show through Microsoft. But I was only one of like 13 content providers on that platform at that time. So talk about not having a saturated market yet. Like you, right, <laughs> like right. everything that people complain exactly. about now or worry about, I should say, it was like the total opposite. Yeah, well, some of the other pr- providers were like, the NBC News folks, uh, Forbes was doing stuff in, in this app as well, creating like uh, five or six minute video clips that, that were being transferred from Windows XP to a pocket PC device. And I was one of only two or three audio radio shows that were available to be downloaded through this application. So it sounds like you are, <laughs> there's so many questions yeah. I have, uh, or so many thoughts I should say as well, but 
you're obviously a very good marketer and you figured out how to do that not only for others but for yourself in order to get into these spaces that weren't necessarily obvious spaces yet it's hard to do that when things are new as well when people don't know what they are well, yet it's, it's hard but it's also there was a lot of experimentation back in that time frame too people really didn't understand the implications of what was happening with the growth of the internet there, there was a lot of mystery around it mm-hmm. and that was one of the things that i capitalized on from a culture perspective and also from just a technology perspective there, there was just so many people that were curious about it there were movies being made about the cyberspace you know and x-files were getting involved in you know the hackers and movies were being made back then about right. the the mystique of the internet just in general I really capitalized on that and built this radio show that from the numbers that I was able to gather and on radio, the numbers aren't very reliable, but, you know, at least a few, a few million listeners per episode of the show that I was, I was doing back then because of all the distribution that I was doing at the time. So that's amazing. So were you demystifying yeah. What internet was yeah. for people to be like, this, this is how you can use it. And yeah, I was trying to explain kind of um, in helping people understand where I was seeing the internet going. And just based on the, the, the experts that I was bringing on my show, uh, they were sharing also about the growth and development of what was happening with technology. I think at that time there was a, a, a craving for understanding uh, what was happening because people were starting to hear about this internet thing, but they weren't really, I mean, a lot of people were still on AOL at the time. So they thought that AOL was the internet and it, it yeah. really wasn't. So there was so much more to come and wireless was just something that I almost talked about every week on the show because of its potential impact. I mean, now we just take for granted what's happening with wireless to access to the internet. But back then True. that was a, you know, science fiction dream to, <laughs> to have your device always connected to the internet. Cause back then, you know, most people were connecting via a dial up connection and the phone line. Right. Yeah. Do you remember when you had to, you couldn't, no one could use the telephone if you were going to be online. Exactly. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that in a yeah. really long time yeah. and that I, I forgot all about that. But because of a lot of that, the technology companies like Real Networks and Microsoft had developed streaming technology servers. So they were able to take that limited bandwidth and be able to deliver media. They, they were starting to develop servers that you could run to stream audio and video files. And that was the big revolution. Yes, exactly. The other thing I wanted to point out in listening to your story is that I'm hearing this entrepreneurial journey this entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. spirit, I should say, that you seem to have. Do you feel like that's true? Or do you feel like it's just about timing and your interests and kind of capitalizing on those things? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would categorize myself as as an entrepreneur per se. The best way to categorize me is that I like to play at the cutting edge of things. Whether or not that takes me into a, a job or a career direction, you know, there's been various times that I've started companies on the side and worked full time for a startup company. So I do have a strong history of working for technology startups too. So after I left Florida Citrus, I got various jobs, you know, like a software distribution manager for freeinternet.com for, for like a year. And then I worked for a, a startup for a year as a marketing director for a company that was building 
uh, was called shopper boxes back then. So if you've ever gone to a Amazon locker box at like a Whole Foods or in your apartment complex, mm-hmm. um, that was the project that I was working on back in 2002 w- w- with a startup. And I do believe that some of the same people that I work with at that company went on to help Amazon build their their shopper box, which is not called their shopper box, but it's the same technology. Uh, in 2005, I started this one. I really started getting into working uh, for platforms and podcasting. I worked for a company called Melodio up in Seattle. It was a startup company, had about $26 million in VC investment and was kind of their marketing director of this platform that basically was supporting music. And what they were shifting over to in 2005 was supporting podcasts. I see. Okay, interesting. So you're kind of on the edge of of all of these things just throughout your journey. But I see where the link is between like radio and podcasting and starting to host. Did you like hosting, by the way? Did you discover that you really enjoyed having a show? Because you still have a show. <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious yeah. if that was something that you're like, oh, I'm good at this. And I like this being on the mic. When I started, I wasn't very good at it. I'll just be completely honest with you. I was I was not into any kind of presentations back then. I was scared to death. And as I was evolving as doing this show, I was getting asked to speak at conferences and like the Streaming Media West conference uh, got got me to moderate a panel. Uh, That was the first time I ever gotten up on stage to actually talk to a live audience. Doing a radio show thing was just not something, I mean... Yeah, it just wasn't something that I was accustomed to or had any kind of training in or whatever. I just walked in and it I just saw it as an opportunity and and grabbed it you, and tried to play at the cutting yeah, edge of you it. You did it anyway, and right. I think that even speaks yeah. more to the integrity behind your choices because it's harder to do the things that we're uncomfortable doing and just doing it anyway. I was definitely uncomfortable doing it. And that's w- one of the reasons why I took it out of the radio station. Ultimately, I, I was doing it live at the radio station, and it was just too frustrating mm-hmm. doing this show at the radio station. It wasn't getting produced to the quality that I wanted to get it produced because I would just, just to give a really quick example, I would book a guest, from, you know, like a, like a manager from Microsoft to join me on the show mm-hmm. live. Uh, at a certain time, he had to call in during the commercial break, and he or she or whoever it was calling into the show, and they wouldn't call in during the commercial break. And I had just promoted them prior to the commercial break. And then when I came back from the commercial break, they weren't there. So, I, you know, I always had to have backup content all the time. So eventually I just got frustrated with that and took it home and started building my own studio and pre-produced everything. So I would schedule my guests just like what we've done here do those recordings and then I would take the recordings and then piece together the the episode. So that's how I solved my production problems <laughs> is that I took responsibility for the whole production and it fit better with my work schedule anyway. Yes, I, I can relate to that. Live is a whole nother bag yeah. of skills too yeah. and, and having to fill fill air mm-hmm. when things don't go right. It's there's a lot of improv and pivoting in that scenario. So I understand wanting to take it home and control it a little bit more, but also I'm sure you got to learn more about, you know, what the recording process is like in production and things like that too. Oh yeah. The school of hard knocks on that one. Yeah, I had to create different versions of my show. I had a 30 minute show that was going to public radio. I had an, a 46 minute show that was going to satellite radio and then a separate version of the show going to XM satellite radio network that they had six commercial breaks. So everything had to be edited down to wow. the second. 
I couldn't, you know, so it's not like podcasting where you just go until you're done, right? <laughs> that was the breath of fresh air about podcasting. And that's why I got out of radio ultimately is because I, I had so much more freedom to, to produce whatever I wanted to produce and didn't have to worry about duration of everything that yes, I did. Yes, I relate to that. All that said, now that we're, we're kind of segued into podcasting a little bit and the freedoms that that brings, mm-hmm. and that's what I love about it too. It's a very free form space that you can use you can leverage it yeah. in so many ways as a marketer, as a creative person, as you know, someone who wants to leave radio and have more freedom, whatever it is for you. But I'd love to know what, why you find podcasters, like indie podcasters, an important part of the industry. We're kind of in, this, in the middle of this acquisition boom right now, and there's a lot of fear around what podcasting is going to become. So I kind of want to talk about the people who aren't working at these big networks or get or part of or even um, shows that are part of these big networks why is it important to keep those those channels alive well i think it's at the core of the medium um i started out that way i started as an independent content creator i didn't you know i didn't have any affiliations with big networks though i i built them as part of the growth and development of my show because it, it, it helped further the, the audience growth and the distribution of my show to develop relationships with larger companies and larger entities. But at the core, I was still an indie content creator. I still owned my content. I still was responsible for what was in it, was accountable for what was in it. And I think that's the core of podcasting. Um, the vast majority of shows in podcasting are independent produced podcasts. And a lot of the shows that we consider to be big media podcasts, a lot of them came out of being independent. So I think it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a gray area right now around people's perception of mm. what's indie and what isn't. I, I do agree that some of the bigger networks have a lot more money to put into the productions of what they do. And that's what is seen as a little unfair or they get additional marketing or they have big teams that are developing mm-hmm. content. But the truth, the, the other truth is, is that that's actually a fairly small percentage of the podcasting space as um, shows that are being produced like that. And a lot of them come out of public radio um, or a lot of the shows um, that are being produced, uh, the producers yeah. have come out of public radio. So it's, it's a little bit of a, it's a perception versus reality thing. I, I have sympathy for independent creators at the core, and that's one of the reasons mm-hmm. that I work for Lipson, is that um, is that that's this platform is the platform that really birthed this medium. Lipson is has always been community focused. It's always been a a defender of the openness of podcasting, and um, that's that's why I wound up here because that fits with the opinion and the philosophy that I have about the culture of this medium and trying to preserve it. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. How would you say that ties into the efforts of the podcast Academy and the AMVs that we just recently streamed? Yeah, I think it's a great question because it, it, it does typify um, that, that struggle uh, of perception versus reality and also just um, making sure that the, that the, and this was one of the reasons I got involved was to to be on the inside to understand what was happening with this organization and be a leader inside of the organization to inspire the the leadership of um, the podcast academy to uh, really think about indies on a on a, a regular and consistent basis and bring them into the fold more and more and more and more and I believe that the organization is definitely moving in that direction more and more I think. 
I, I think there's a lot more room to go on that because I do know that this organization had to get started. And unfortunately, getting started requires money. And money typically comes from larger companies. Um, so whenever you get something started like this, there needs to be investment um, in paying for staff, paying for infrastructure, paying for processes to get done, and building an infrastructure that uh, appeals to those larger companies, at least at the start, to get it off the ground. And, and, and I think what's happening now is, is that um, there's going to be a big shift over the next year where the membership is going to vote in the board. Mm. <laughs> so that could create a different dynamic here. I'm only going to be on the board through the end of 2022. I'm the former chair of it, I, the founding chair of it. Um, I just, I kind of fell into that role. Um, I don't think anybody else wanted to take it mm. on um, at the time. And so I saw it as an opportunity to really kind of bring bring the focus to the indie community um, as being the chairperson of that. And I did the best that I could balancing between that and the needs of the organization to bring in cash flow into the company, into the organization. It's actually a nonprofit to to build it out. And I think we've succeeded in, in, in doing all those things. So now we can start really focusing on being a um, an organization that supports indies as well as the larger podcasters. Awesome. That's a wonderful initiative. I'm hoping that it does play out that way. It, it is a little, uh, there's, yeah. there's fear around the other uh, awards that exist of, of the, that, that it might become like that where it's, where it's the other Academy Awards where there's a lot of politics involved and right. the big guys kind of own it and they're showcasing and it's, it seems like it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. easy to squeeze the indies out. Yeah. It's nice to hear that that's part of this. I agree. It's, it's, it's a slippery slope and it's easy to have mm-hmm. happen when an organization needs money to pay for production. It needs money to pay for branding. It needs money to pay for public relations to drive, drive attention to the mm-hmm. medium. And so, yeah, so it's actually, I think, making some great progress on all that stuff. That's cool. How did you feel about the first live streaming, the first award show? Yeah, I thought it was a big, big success. It actually uh, worked out r- really, really well. So yeah, it was a production that it really I, I'm proud of. I think it was, I mean, for a first year event, I think we, we were able to walk the line on many things. I do think that too many big media companies won awards at the event. I think it needed to have more indies win. And I think that gets back to the limited amount of um, um, submissions. I think mm-hmm. we, we only had a thousand submissions to the Ambies, and I think we need probably more than like five to ten thousand to really it, get that that representation free? in there. No, it's not, and that's that's, that's one of the things. Problem. So I'm I'm actually encouraging the board to you know like cut the application fee for submission in half or get it down or and offer scholarships to certain parts of the the industry to to allow submission of larger and more more diverse areas of the uh, the podcasting space to be able to submit for consideration yes thanks for talking about that because i i do notice that there's a lot of barriers around these types of things and that's a big reason why a lot of indie people or or anyone who faces a barrier doesn't get in because it's it ends up being not not worth it or people are not making money on their shows and 
you know, it's a, you want recognition, but you know, how do you, how do you bridge that gap? Yeah. So I appreciate you wanting to cut that in half. And I watched it. I thought it was great too. I feel the same. I, about the outcome, I thought it was well-produced that it was interesting. I'm really curious to see where that, that ends up and how it can be, um, at the platform. Well, next year it's going to be it's going to be live on stage, so we're going to have a, a real audience next year. So it's going to be part of uh, podcast movement in Los Angeles. Oh, at Evolutions. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Then also, there's a desire to bring back the uh, Podcasters Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. We'll actually be at Podcast the Evolutions event also. So we're, we're going to have the Ambies and Podcast Hall of Fame wow. happen at uh, evolutions um next year boy lots of interesting podcast stuff happening next year that's cool you heard it here first guys now that's cool so all that said before we end i want to ask you on this journey you've had with radio and now podcasting how do you feel it's benefited you specifically well it's had a huge impact on my my career i've had opportunities that I feel very fortunate to have had. In the early days of this medium, there weren't many podcasting jobs that were available that you could get. So that's why in some ways it's shocking to, for me to see what's happening in the medium right now. There's 800 jobs, pod jobs, uh, as part of pod news right now. So you think about that compared to what, there was probably maybe maybe a dozen jobs back in the Back in the mid 2000s, so I mean, it's it just the whole medium is just kind of kind of blown up, and it's it's been a medium that I had a lot of faith in. I mean, I I really kind of stayed focused on this medium through a lot of I guess say less than optimal times for mm-hmm. podcasting. I think as you look at the the 2009, 10, and 11 time frame, that was kind of a fairly uh, low spot for for the medium coming out of the the growth of uh, if you think back social media basically took away a lot of the focus of mm-hmm. podcasting uh, when it started to grow uh, if you think about Twitter when Twitter started Twitter actually started as a podcasting company originally and they sold their technology back in 2006 and then they launched uh, Twitter in 2007 which was about in the same time frame that uh, Facebook launched uh, on a public stuff, they they were doing stuff with like colleges and high schools back in back in 2006 and that time frame. But 2007 was the big blow up for uh, social media, and that took all of the the air out of the room. Um, and and podcasting really kind of fell off of the off of the the wagon at that point. A lot of the big media companies pulled out from podcasting in that time frame. But that was also the time frame as you came into 2008 to 2009 is when the comedians started to get into uh, podcasting. Adam Carolla, Mark Marin, those those folks um, started to to plow some significant ground around storytelling. And that's what the comedians really did a great job was entertaining. It wasn't geeky tech content which had been the the dominant stuff. I mean I raised my hand. I was doing a lot of that back then. And um, so that took us into the entertainment side of podcasting. When those comedians started to uh, get involved in, that was the time frame that uh, the mid-roll and the, the ear-roll network in Los Angeles um, started to take off. I knew um, Jeff Ulrich, who's the founder of the, the Earwolf network and in mid-roll and went down to visit him in LA and all this stuff as he was building his company. I, I know at one point he was, 
he was about ready to quit podcasting and just develop mobile apps because it was so frustrating for him mm. because he couldn't make money doing it. So he was investing so much into it. Uh, and then ultimately, you, know, you saw what happened to Midroll and then Stitcher yeah. and, and how that got got purchased. But that started out as very much a, a startup thing as yeah. well. That was really rough during that time frame as well. And I was working for Microsoft at that time. So I was going around the country trying to tell the big media companies to stay with it, stay in podcasting. I could fly to New York and I'd go to Washington, D.C. I met with National Public Radio and met with... Uh, Nat Geo and met with Viacom and all these big companies back in that time frame saying, you know, stay in the medium. This is this is how you can do it. This is how you can make money. It's just they didn't want to invest in it. So, so that that was the period that I went through dur- during that that time that I was in the early days of of Zoom. What what made you stick with it when 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 other people were falling out and all of this was going on? What what held the vision for you? It was the ability of. <sighs> normal people to be able to create shows and to build things. Uh, back in those days, radio was, was a, you know, a gatekeeper. If you think about the music industry around Napster, it was, a, it was all about the culture of what was happening with digital, right? Um, all of these, these gatekeepers and all, all these folks that were getting in the way of normal people having a voice were stopping that from happening, and the Internet was opening that up. I mean, look what I was able to do. I was able to build a show that had a couple million people on it. I didn't, I wasn't beholden to these radio networks. I just did a deal with them because I already had a successful show. So because I built it just from the grassroots and I I built it around streaming and and got in relationships with technology companies, it it opened other doors of opportunity. Uh, And I saw that as an opportunity for other content creators that could do this. As a form of, I, I saw very early that this medium was around content marketing. It was about building relationships with people as, a, as, as opposed to selling people, right? I, I was a marketing guy, sales guy. I, I sold hot dogs and lunch meat for years to, to big grocery brands, right? So I was totally into the sales stuff. But it was, over time, it started to develop more into relationships and building trust, building, you know, personal connections with individuals and people. And that's how marketing was starting to develop. And then you started seeing that evolve into the brands and how the brands were starting to realize that they could use the internet to better direct reach their customers and to deliver marketing messages or brand value messages or building that connection, that direct connection. And that's what the opportunity was that I saw. And I saw podcasting is probably one of the best ways of doing that it was the cheapest way to deliver content you could do whatever you wanted to do it wasn't gatekeepered really um at that time and to most degree it still isn't wow yeah that makes sense (laughs) that's why i love it too it's it's the no gatekeepers part it's why i got into podcasting myself so i'm very protective over wanting to keep it that way also and i love that you feel the same way and have really lived the journey of keeping that spirit alive all of that said if if there's one takeaway you'd like someone to have from this conversation what would that be say you know follow your passions of what you enjoy doing try and develop your vision for what you see of where opportunities are it can be in a lot of different areas stay focused on what your beliefs are about 
uh, what you feel good about and what you want to accomplish in your your life. Uh, it may not always go the way you hope it does, but always be um, aware of the evolutions of any market or um, opportunities out there and just position yourself based on relationships and contacts and and being a good quality person um, to people out there. And I think that's the key to to navigating um, your career, or navigating cutting edge type of things is uh, be a, a supporting and a service to whatever that is that you, you enjoy and, and the other people that are involved in the same passion. I love that. So be a good person, make connections, make relate. It's relationship based, right? A lot of, a lot of successes are, I, I can attest to that too. It's the people who you decide to connect with and and also help uh, a lot of people that I've helped came back even years later with things they can help me with because people grow they grow into their you know whatever they're they're trying to grow into and you never know I mean help can take um, take a lot of forms it can take just moral support exactly <laughs> saying you're doing the right thing or or just you know what you're doing is fantastic and and it can it can also be more tactical too. It can be um, suggestions, advice, referrals to other people that that have opportunities that can go your way too. And and that that creates like a a level of respect that others have towards you in in being willing to help others and not always being looking to benefit directly. I think that's great advice. I think that's a nice thing to talk about and and to emphasize because the idea of quote unquote networking. Oh, it feels icky to a lot of people, but these are nice ways to do it. It doesn't have to be this gross networky salesy thing. It can just be, just be a good person. <laughs> right. I, I mean, it should, and, and that's not the path to success is being a hard salesperson anymore. The path to success is being a soft salesperson that actually listens and tries to drive value um, to others. Uh, that's the sales. I mean, that's the biggest thing that I learned o- over the years was was use content as a as a vehicle to build trust and then personal interactions is also you know kind of just as important but it doesn't scale you know so that's the other part of it too is that podcasting can scale that trust relationships across larger groups of of people yeah and that i think that's truly like where the the gold lies in in podcasting it's it's that thing it's being able to help people in this in this way and then eventually you can build you can build a whole business around it if you want to or a brand or whatever you're trying to build yeah well and, and podcasting puts you in a position where you're building human trust relationships at a level that's never been possible before really i i mean i know that you can do that on on youtube and you can do it on facebook live and you can do it on linkedin live now more and more and i, I think th- those are all kind of part of the same kind of trend that's that, that's going on but there, there is something a little bit more special about audio podcasting and the the depth of the the emotion that goes into that i'm not sure that the facebook videos and the youtube videos have that same human connection i, I think it's just more about information mm-hmm. sharing but there's just something that's human about podcasting that takes it to another level there's an intimacy there that is special to podcasting and part of that just to touch on this quickly is I think that a lot of that comes with the way people listen. It's the way we listen. We're going to bed or we're 
you know, we're doing other things while our family's running around or, you know, we're multitasking while we're doing like our intimate parts of the day, whether it's, you know, some people listen while they're in the shower or some people listen while, you know, they're doing their chores or their dishes or taking a drive or, you know, there's something about that that feels like there's like a companionship aspect to it that becomes sort of warm and fuzzy. Well, Rob, this was really wonderful. What's the best way people can reach you? Well, I'm on Twitter at Rob Greenlee. I'm I'm also on LinkedIn too. So if you do a search for my name in there and uh, Facebook and all of the all, all the major social platforms I, c- I can be found on and still playing with those generally. And then I can also be reached by email too. If you want to send me an email, uh, robg at lipson.com. I'd be happy to hear from you. And if I can be of any, any help or assistance to you, just like what I was sharing earlier, this is what I've always done and I, I will continue to do so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Rob. Yeah, this was yeah. this was wonderful. We're going to, for those of you who really want to know how to start a podcast or what you should be thinking about before you start, listen to tomorrow's episode. We're going to talk about that a little bit and give you some actionable steps you can take. So be sure to tune in tomorrow as well. And thank you, Rob, for joining me. This is This has been wonderful. Thank you, Parsi, for having me on your show. Thank you for listening to Be Bold Begin. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so as not to miss an episode. So the best way to ensure you get all the new episodes is by subscribing. Help us build a positive community by joining the Facebook group, also called Be Bold Begin. I'll be checking it daily to answer and acknowledge any of your questions and comments. Stay positive and safe out there.